for those of you who have not been with us, this is the end of a seven-part series uh, on the message to the churches of the book of Revelation. And so we've been asking the question, what does God want from us? What is his message to us from the book of Revelation? So why do we read it? Well, right there in the first verse of the first First chapter of Revelation, it says, This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, Revelation, of course, as we've said many times, is a tough read. It's tough. But Jesus says right here, pay attention to what this says. So in the midst of the challenges of reading that book, we're going to pay attention to it. And so this series has really been focused on what I've been calling the obvious view. The obvious view is how can we apply God's message today. And so we look at the seven churches, we really see that they represent seven types of churches or seven conditions that churches face during the church age. Now, if you were with us last week, um, I definitely appreciated Tim gave us a little snapshot of there's one view of these churches that each church applies to an era going throughout history. I think that's a great, it's a great concept there. We really, you know, Tim did a good job of just saying, hey, it's worth thinking about. Um, Not sure if we're going to hold to that necessarily, but I thought we would just give you a quick overview here of the other six churches that we've gone through and the message that we've seen in each of those. Um, So uh, Ephesus was the first church, and really the message from that was talking about getting back to our first love, and our first love is Jesus. Uh, The second church was Smyrna, and the message to us in there was that we need to recognize that persecution is really reality for those who claim the name of Christ. The third church... Pergamum, uh, we were uh, looking at uh, the concept of striving to live without spiritual compromise. Remember, we talked a bunch about the doctrine of compromise and how we can kind of punt on certain things um, for a variety of reasons when it comes to spirituality. Uh, the fourth church, Thyatira, uh, was uh, we talked about avoiding false doctrine. It's very easy to let things creep into our lives um, that can point us in the wrong way, so we we're talking about avoiding that. The fifth church was Sardis. We talked about waking up from a spiritual slumber. And then last week, of course, Tim talked to us about the church in Philadelphia, about how we can have hope in God through all things. So finally, we get to the church in Laodicea, the last one, the last message. And so we'll start in chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, and I'll just read it to you. Hopefully the, the handout is passed around. You also have it in front of you and some paper there. You can take notes on this as you see fit. So he says this, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot, would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline to be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, 
I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen? Amen. So it's really, really easy. There's a lot in this passage, right? But it's really easy to see that the theme here is being lukewarm. Or don't be lukewarm, right? And so what does that mean? So we're going to talk about that today. First, what is lukewarm? Well, I was really curious. I was like, as I was preparing for this, I thought, well, I'm going to see if I can get a definition of lukewarm. So I went and looked at physics. And so from a physics standpoint, what exactly is lukewarm? I thought, surely I'm going to look and there's going to be a specific precise temperature range from 55.2 degrees Fahrenheit to 70.5, you know. But no, what did I find? There's no specific temperature range at all. It's just kind of vague. Lukewarm is just sort of this vague kind of, whoa, sort of zone, right? It's just undefined. And why? I was like, well, why is that? Well, it's because lukewarm water, as I understand it, and I'm no scientist, but what I understand is that it's just useless when it comes to scientific experimentation. It does nothing for you because water is really used, particularly in science, as a temperature regulator. It's used as a way to distribute heat. It's a way to insulate. And so if water is lukewarm, it's just not useful for any of those things. So I guess that's maybe why it's not defined, really. So you can kind of think about, from a physics standpoint, uh, lukewarm water is kind of hot but not really, right? That's kind of a weak definition, but that's the best I could do. And then I think it's interesting in this passage, we have uh, Jesus, who is the creator of the universe, right? And he says, would that you were either cold or hot. So even he echoes that idea that lukewarm is just kind of this, ah, it's not really good for anything. And so then I thought, okay, beyond physics, what about from a practical standpoint, what is lukewarm when it comes to, you know, practically? What do I use lukewater for at home, right? Well, I thought about, like, cooking, washing. I couldn't really think of a good use for it, right? You know, if you ever go to your, you ever go to your dishwasher and you turn the knob to the lukewarm setting? You can't, right? Because there's no lukewarm setting. I guess on a washing machine there's a warm setting, but that really just means a little bit less hot, right? It doesn't really mean kind of lukewarm water. Um, and really think about drinking. So let's say I sit you down and I put a blindfold on you and I say, I am going to pour you a beautiful cup of tea. And so you're going to be prepared for what? This nice hot Earl Grey tea or this wonderful sweet southern cold iced tea. But what if I pour you something that's lukewarm? What are you going to do? Right? It's just going to come out of your mouth, right? Like, so... It's horrible to drink, right? It's kind of like drinking Coca-Cola in Europe. They don't put it on ice, right? It's terrible. You're like, oh, no thanks. Right? But what is it great for at home? I guess some homes, maybe Mike and Luann's home. For the swimming pool, right? Well, maybe not in Colorado, right? We really like to have warmer water. But you go to a hot climate, you don't really want cold water, right? We're going to the Pacific Ocean here this next week. I don't know how many of us are really going to swim because it's not lukewarm, cold. It might be really hot. Hopefully it's going to be really hot in California after the weather we've had here. But it's not lukewarm. But you want a pool to be lukewarm because it's, oh, it's this sort of nice gradual adjustment from the heat of places like Texas and California. Right? And so I think back to our passage and think about practically speaking. Jesus says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Just like that cup of tea. 
that I poured you that was tasted, that was tasteless, right? And then what about, so we got physics and we got a practical standpoint. What about from a faith standpoint? What is lukewarm as it's applied to faith? So if I say that, I think probably all of you in your mind can make, oh, start to come up with some concepts there. Think about not really having any action associated with your face or with your faith, or maybe like a hypocrisy of saying something and not doing something. Um, <clears throat> another phrase I thought of was thinking richly and acting poorly. And a way this would apply in faith is if you said, man, I really think I'm a faithful servant of Jesus. But in reality, your actions do not bear out that you're a faithful witness of Jesus. Right? I love it. Uh, there's a, a paraphrase of the Bible called the message. <clears throat> Any of you read it? I read it occasionally. It's kind of a good take on some of these things. And it translates Jesus' words this way. I put them on the screen. It says, I know you inside and out and find little to my liking. You're not hot. You're not cold. You're not hot. Far better to be either cold or hot. You're stale. You're stagnant. You make me want to vomit. It's not good, right? I think that's even stronger than the other version we had up there on the screen. And, and I think what Jesus is really saying, he's, well, what he's not just saying is that lukewarm faith is worthless. I think he's saying that lukewarm faith is worse than useless. It's counterproductive. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. And so if we think about, okay, Jesus says, don't be lukewarm. Be either hot or cold. Do you think Jesus is really saying, yeah, it's okay to be cold? you think that's what he's saying? I don't think so. Why would Jesus want us to be cold? He wants us to be hot, right? And so the real problem here is that when you're lukewarm, you think you're hot, but you're not. Now, I thought, I want to diagram this out. Some of you know, I'm an architect by profession. I like to sketch. I like to um, put things down. So I was like, I'm going to draw some, some uh, little sketches here. So I thought, first, I'm going to do a little diagram of a typical thermometer, put this on the screen here. I love it, right? They say that the older architects get, the worse their drawing becomes. So here you get my example. So this is my highly scientific, you've got cold on one side and hot on the other side, right? We'd all agree, yeah, that, when I think of a scale from cold to hot, something like, maybe not quite this messy, but something like this, right? This is what you got. Okay. Well, those of you who know me also know I really like to diagram the gospel, too, when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, I have a diagram I like to draw. And so put on the screen here, and it's the idea in the gospel, and is what makes us unique from so many other faith views, is that we are in a balance or a tension or whatever you want to describe between grace and truth. Between grace, this idea that I am forgiven, ultimately forgiven, and ultimately loved by God, and nothing I can do can change the way that he looks at me. And yet, on the other side, in this balance of truth of I am utterly sinful and wretched and there's nothing I can do on my own to make myself better, right? And so we're sort of caught in that middle, in that balance. We hold that tension between those two things and the gospel is the perfect mix of those. So, if you put these two diagrams together, just sort of off the top of your head, these lovely drawn diagrams, you might think, depending on your perspective, ah, well, to be really gracious is hot, or you might flip it around and be like, oh, to be really truthful is really hot, right? Like, we look at other, other worldviews, other religions. Um, you think about, there's, I even think of these, uh, 
these uh, Muslims in, uh, I believe it's in Iran or Iraq, and they have this sort of ceremony once a year where they, they run around and like cut themselves on the forehead, and it's their way of showing how hot they are in their faith. And so we could think about, all oh, this action, we could really do this, and could really do this thing, or we might even think of it on the grace side where we go, I'm just so loving, the more loving I am, the more like Jesus I am, the hotter I am for faith. But I don't think that's really the case. I think if you put these things together, you go, wow, this is what makes Christianity so different from everything else is that we're finding a center and a balance in that. So I have a third diagram here that kind of combines the two. Hey, you guys like this, right? And hot is in the middle. And going towards the sides is lukewarm. And I think that's the idea is that as you begin to go one way or you begin to go to the other, you begin to become lukewarm. And so that's my diagram of the lukewarm and so now I think we've got to ask ourselves a question as well, which is, am I lukewarm? And am I getting lukewarmer? Is that a word? I don't know. I put it on the screen anyway because I think it's fun. You can just make up. Uh, I like lukewarmness too. It's another good one, right? So, well, am I lukewarm? Individually, am I lukewarm? I would say, typically, as Americans... We're going to have a tendency to be that way. Why? Because I think there's ruts that we have in our personal life. And I think those are caused by things like technology, the media, our culture. Now, that's not necessarily all those things are bad, but there's a lot of those, as those things are used and work in their lives, they begin to carve ruts that take us away from the gospel. And I think Satan really uses those things to cool us off. Another thing we have in this culture that can make us lukewarm is uh, comfort and liberty. I was thinking about America, and this is Memorial Weekend, and we celebrate and are thankful for those who have served and those who have given their lives to preserve our freedoms. But we are really a long way as a culture from a place where we were really all engaged in a fight for our liberty. And I think the farther we get from that, the more we begin to take those things for granted, and as we take those things for granted, we begin to take uh, our faith for granted as well. And we become lukewarm. Another thing individually is even just being busy. I think there's a cancer of being busy. What do I mean by that? I think that we can just say, oh, I have all this time, and my time is filled, and I have my smartphone, and can ask it questions and it gives me answers and I can do this, I can find out how to get places and I save all this time and yet time just sort of vacuums us up into all these other things and we go, man, I'm too busy. And as I was thinking about this this morning, some of you read the Faith Walkers Journal from our church movement. Uh, It's just a very short little devotional message with a scripture reading. Um, And this morning's was by a guy named Brent Knox, a pastor in Evergreen. And he said this about being busy. And I think this is a good message for each of us. He says, I know you are busy, but don't make your busyness an excuse to cut short your time with God. Trust God that he will give you ability to navigate your busyness and multiply your time. It is a step of faith to trust God when you are busy. So then I think it's a step of faith to say, ah, can let this busyness let me get lukewarm in my faith. God, please help me. I'm going to take a step of faith here to follow you. Now, that's individually. Are we getting, are we lukewarm? Yeah, there's a lot of reasons why we as individuals can be lukewarm. But what about as a culture? Well, 
go back to our thinking about lukewarm as sort of being as a blasé towards faith. And I think we actually see our culture in some ways doing the opposite of that. There, our culture is not getting blasé. Our culture seems to be polarizing. I don't know if you sense that as you read the news and look at articles and, and think about all the things going on in our world and our culture. Man, there seems to be this polarization. And as there's a polarization, you go, well, that doesn't seem to be sort of a lukewarming. That seems to be an opposite of that. So are we not lukewarming as a culture as it, was, as it relates to faith? Well, some of you may have heard there's a poll that came out a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago. Um, and it shows that Christianity in America is on, on the decline shows like an 8% drop of people who say they're Christians in like the last 10 years or something like that. Now, there's a lot of reasons people debate. Is that a legitimate poll or not? Like any poll, right? And that's fine. We could have that debate. But I think there's probably some truth to it and there's something very likely about um, that drop in our culture. So why? And I think, the reason why I think we've seen a, a drop of that in our culture is that for a long time now, for many decades as Americans... As Christians, much of the Christian church is engaged in what I would call almost Christianity. What do I mean by that? I mean that that's a Christianity that's really cultural. It's really not based on faith. It's maybe based on experience. I've heard some people call it, instead of people being believers, call it being make-believers. And so I think what we see in our culture here is that... uh, People are rejecting that and are beginning to see that, hey, you know, it's actually okay, culturally speaking, to be an atheist or to to hold a view and say, I don't really have any faith in anything. So I think people are saying, why should I fake Christianity if it's okay to be not Christian? And so I think more and more Americans are sort of going, especially young Americans, are going that way and they're really sort of rejecting make-believe. And I think as a church in America, uh, we have really been culprits for that because I think for a number of decades, we've engaged in this sort of program of, ah, we really want to seek out, we really want to attract seekers to our church. And to do that, we've often just sort of lukewarmed the truth. And we've sort of said, well, I'm not going to talk about hard things. We're not going to ask hard things of people. We're going to have um, gimmicks and other things in our, in our churches and our service because we want to fill the seats with people. And I found a quote here from a a guy named Ben Shapiro. He's a commentator, an author. Um, Sometimes I agree with him, sometimes not. But I thought this quote was particularly pertinent to this idea of what the problem is with religion, as he calls it. I think we could apply it to Christianity, specifically in America. He says this. He says, speaking of churches, he says, Talk about sin alienates. Talk about heaven and hell alienates. And so religious institutions decided, he's talking about in the last couple decades, decided not to focus on such uncomfortable but eternal truths in order to fill pews. He goes on and he says, major religious institutions across the United States decided it would be more effective to draw constituents with honey rather than vinegar. Forgetting, of course, that religion isn't either. He goes on, says religion is fine wine. It may taste bitter when it first hits the tongue, but it is rich, sweet, and beautiful when you know what you're drinking. Religion without standards is kumbaya happy talk requiring neither God nor church. Right? I think that's kind of a funny way to put it. But I think the problem, what he really hits to here, is that the church has often thought that it is hot, but it's not. 
just like us in our own lives, we think we're hot and we're not. And that kind of lukewarm faith is not attractive, especially, I think, to millennials. And so my answer to that question, are we lukewarm and getting lukewarmer, is yes, we are and have been lukewarm as Christians in America. And it's up to us whether we get any lukewarmer. So, how do I combat lukewarmness in my faith? And how do we combat lukewarmness in my church? I think we can ask it another way. How do I get back to that gospel center? How do I get back to the middle, to that balance? Well, what does Jesus tell us? He gives us the answer right there in Revelation 3 in our passage. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may, not, so that you may see. So right there, he gives us three ways we can move away from lukewarmness. That is great. I don't have to figure out how to do it on my own. He gives me the answer right there. First, he says, buy gold to be rich. And I really see that as I read that. He's saying, invest your life and invest your treasure in the kingdom of God. And so a question you could ask yourself is, am I committed to other believers? Does my commitment to other believers, does that trump other activities and passions that I have going on in my life? Second thing he says there is you should buy garments to cover your shame, which I think really means investing your life in pursuing purity. What are you choosing to watch? How are you using that technology that you have? How are you engaging with that culture? What are you choosing to think about? Are you investing your life in pursuing purity? The third thing he says is buy salve for blindness. And I think he's saying invest your life and your time and your treasure in changing your view. Invest it in changing your view and getting your view back to that center. We need to change our view of Jesus, many of us. We need to change our view and recognize, nope, Jesus is God. We need to change our view of the Bible and say, nope, the Bible is true. All of the Bible is true. It's part of why we're having that special Genesis Sunday on Father's Day. I hope you'll join us for it. I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to that Sunday. We also need to change our, our, uh, our view of ourselves. We need to recognize that we are sinners. We have to recognize that Jesus' sacrifice in the cross paid the penalty for our sins. And I think we even need to change our view of the church. We need to stop thinking about church as a movieplex where we go on Sunday morning with our popcorn and our tickets and watch the show and critique it. I think we need to think about church as a place, like he said, the fine wine where we come together and we go after the person of Jesus and we proclaim his good news to anybody who will listen. That's the point of the church and we need to change our view of it. So how do I make that lukewarm water of my life into hot water? How do I get it back? Well, you've got to heat it up. So think about our diagrams here. I think I got it on the screen again. Um, how do you heat up? You need to move away from licentiousness. If you're on that side and you're just like, oh, it's just grace and everything's good and we just love everyone and I don't really care about sin. You've got to move away from that. Or if you're on the hard, hard side of truth and you're saying that's sin, that's sin, and you're, you're saying I'm condemning you, you've got to move back to that middle, that middle where the gospel is. And so how do we do that? I think we've got to look to the example of Jesus again. If we're going to go after Jesus, we've got to look at his example 
And one of my favorite examples, I think, that encapsulates this in one story is found in John chapter 8, verses 2 to 11. And I've got the slides, the verses here on the screen. This is a familiar story to most of us who've read the Bible. It says this, Early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go and sin, and from now on, sin no more. So we go back to how can we mimic Jesus in living out the gospel? Well, I think there's four things. First, we got to live in the world. What does it say right there, the first verse in that passage? It says, he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him. He wasn't out somewhere far away hiding off with his Bibles and his bullets and his beans, right? He was right there in the temple, right with the people, and they were listening to him. The gospel is not running from the lost. It's running to the lost. It's not sitting in silence standing up and heralding the good news to any who would hear it. And to do that, you have to be among the people. The second thing I think we see from this passage on Jesus is it says we should not be throwing stones at sinners. He who is with, Jesus said it right there, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. So, if you go out to a pond and you see a duck, and it quacks. Are you surprised? Probably not. So if you go out into the world and you see a sinner who sins, should you be surprised? Probably not. So don't condemn sinners because you shouldn't be surprised at what they do. But I think there's a greater point here than just all those sinners out there. We are each sinners. I love David shared that verse this morning. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. All, all. What does all mean? All. How much is all? What's the Greek word for all? All. Right? All. Christianity is unique in saying we are all sinners. So when you think about that, if you throw a stone at a sinner, you probably need to throw a stone at yourself. And I think there's a false cultural idea, and we see examples of this time after time, is this idea that, oh, Christians are perfect. Christians are supposed to be perfect. People who follow Jesus, they're perfect. And so when they make a mistake and they have a sin, they go, ha, that just writes it all off. Except we never said we were perfect. Our verse says it right there. All have sinned. That includes me. That includes you. That includes all of us. There's a false cultural idea. We never claimed to be perfect. 
Instead, we claim to be sinners who have been saved by grace. And that grace is a free gift available to anyone. And so I think Jesus made a point here that we should not be throwing stones. Because we are among the sinners. The third thing, though, even though we can't throw stones, we should not be afraid to name sin for what it is, which is sin. Let's not call it something else by some other name. Jesus says to the woman, he says, did no one condemn you? Now see, he didn't say, you're a sinner. But his posture, his body language, his response indicates exactly what his position was on her adultery. He didn't say, oh, that's okay. Just go back to your lover there that you were caught in the act with. He didn't dismiss sin. He didn't condone sin. He drew a contrast between sin and life. Between death and life. And so I think as Christians, it's tempting for us. It's tempting for us to say, ah, it's not sin. We need to say, no, that is sin. Because if we don't say what sin is, how is anyone going to understand what sin is? We can't replace that good news, that idea that I am more sinful than I could ever imagine, yet I'm more forgiven than I ever deserve. If we can't replace that good news, uh, we, we should not replace that good news with what we talked about a few weeks ago, which is that doctrine of compromise. There's a pressure in our culture. I've even heard articles, people in certain sectors saying, ah, oh, the church needs to take certain sins off of their list. It's not our list to make. It's God's list. We have to call sin what it is, and we're not the ones who decide. God has decided. We have to say what it is, because if we don't say, there is no contrast. How can you call somebody into a newness of life if you can't define what a newness of life is? And the last thing we've got to do after we name sin for what it is is we've got to call sinners right there. Call sinners into the life-giving gospel. And Jesus does that right there to that woman. He says, go. From now on, sin no more. There must be a contrast between the believer and the non-believer. Because it would be hard to tell one duck from another duck. But it's easy to tell a redeemed life from an unredeemed life. We need to be living with redeemed lives. We must be ready. We must be willing. We must be active in proclaiming the good news. So what does this look like for us as a church? How do we choose to live this way? How do we choose to get back to that sinner, to get away from lukewarmness? Well, at the firehouse, that's our goal. Our goal is to act like Jesus did in this situation, to act towards the world as individuals and as a church just as he did. And as a church, you probably, if you haven't figured it out by now, it's a newsflash. We're not fancy. This is not the movies. We don't have a fog machine. We don't pay David and Jeremy to come up here and play, right? They're not professionals at this. We're not doing gimmicks because we want to compete for attendees at this church. We are going after Jesus and we are proclaiming his gospel We are striving to live transformed lives. Our goal is to not be lukewarm. Our goal is to not lukewarm the message down so that the firehouse church is the nice comfy pool that we all gather in on Sunday morning and feel good about ourselves. That's not our goal at this church. We want to be a burning flame that's hot. A light that attracts people from the darkness. 
That's what we want to be. That's what we will be at this church. And you know what? It's not going to be popular. And I think many in the culture do and will dislike us and others like us for it. But I have confidence because in doing that, we're going to be heeding what Jesus said and his message right here to this church in Revelation. We will be running from lukewarm faith in obedience to him. Let's pray. God, as we, as we think about this and we wrap up this series, God, we do declare to you that we will not be lukewarm. And though that may not be popular, and though we may have to take a stand on sin issues and call sin what it is, God, that gives us even more of a platform to extend your love and your grace and to put the message of the gospel out and to draw a contrast between the world and the life of sin and the world of redemption that you've given us. Lord, there might be some here today who've heard this message of the good news of Jesus and have never really invited you into their heart, into their life, to say, ah, I want to follow after you, Jesus. I want to make you my Lord, my Savior. And if you're one of those people this morning, you could just pray simply after me and say, Heavenly Father, I, I, I recognize that I am a sinner. And I recognize that you gave your son Jesus Christ as a free gift to pay the penalty for my sin. I invite you into my life to be my Lord and my Savior so that I could have the free gift of eternal life and the opportunity to have your spirit to walk with me and keep me a hot burning Christian for the rest of my life. Lord, and maybe there's some here today who are saying, yeah, I've been living a lukewarm life. I, 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 have, I have accepted Jesus into my life and he is my savior and he's my Lord, but man, I'm not living that way. I'm not making choices to put myself around people who are doing that. I'm not making choices in my personal life to, to burn hot for you. So God, I just pray you'd be moving. Lord, I can't, I can't push buttons and make anybody not be lukewarm. I can only do it in my life, God. I pray you would keep me from being lukewarm. That you would keep me running after you. That I would not grow complacent with all the technology and the culture, the media, the world. All the things we have here in this culture that can just take us away from that hot center into lukewarmness. God, please help me with that. Help others here in this church who struggle with that as well. Um, God, we do. We just want to be running after you as a church. We want to be running away from a lukewarm faith. We want to be trading that in for things that will draw us closer to you and draw others to you. We lift this up to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.